Good day, good people. On today's episode of Daily Border Crossings, we have a woman who has made making sure people are treated fairly and in a decent way her life's work. Alexandra Bailey, who also happens to be running to be the advisory neighborhood commissioner for 2F08 in Ward 2 of D.C., takes just a short while away from helping others and gets candid and personal about her own life. Hear about some of her daily border crossing incidents and life experience in general as a child and adult that shaped the person she is. From disheartening moments to joyous ones, along with some wise pieces of advice on what teachers or other adults should do differently, it's all coming up on Daily Border Crossings. Let's get into it. All right. Good morning, friends. Welcome to Daily Border Crossings. I'm so glad that you are here with us. Daily Border Crossings, again, is a show where we think about sort of crossing these borders. They're not physical borders. They're not actually tangible, but they're these borders that you feel because you have to cross over into the space where a lot of you and your culture and your life and um, things that make you you get left behind and you cross over into a space where you can't be yourself, or maybe you're a person who there's not, it's not a border for you because you always get to be yourself. This is a show to talk about crossing those borders and what that means and what it's like. And today we have as our guest, Alexandra Bailey. Welcome, um, Ms. Bailey, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show. I met Alexandra at a, I was at an event and I, I remember thinking, wow, this is somebody who has a lot to say and is quite knowledgeable. I want to get her on to talk about experiences that led her to this place. So Alexandra, will you tell us a little bit about who you are? Um, yeah, so you and I uh, met at an event uh, with a group that I am the co-coordinator of called the DC Neighbors for Racial Justice. Okay, let me cut in here for the sake of clarification. So when I did this interview with Alexandra, it was a little bit of a while ago, and she was indeed the co-coordinator of DC Neighbors for Racial Justice. Now, at that time, the woman who founded the organization, Jean Simons, was at the helm. However, Alexandra now leads the neighborhood group. I chose not to take this part out because there are critical pieces in here that she shares that I felt helped tell the story of the group, the story of Alexandra's role in it, and how that all fits into her life, the work she does, and who she is. We continue with her explaining about DC Neighbors for Racial Justice. Um, and it's a, it's a group of neighbors who um, came together after an incident happened um, where a woman of color moved into a uh, wealthy, upper-class, uh, sort of suburban DC neighborhood yes. and uh, had a, a housewarming party like you do. Yep. She gave an invitation to all her neighbors, said, come on down. We'd love to meet you. Uh, what ended up happening is that she was cuffed on her and face down on her front yard for Wait, playing cuffed. music too loud. Did you say cuffed? Cuffed. Like handcuffed. She was handcuffed by the police, put into a cop car. Now they messed with the wrong woman um, because she immediately got, she's a lawyer and she got oh. articles published about it. And she really started this dialogue in, in the neighborhood. And uh, my co-coordinator, uh, Jean Simons, uh, she is neighbors with this particular person. And she said, as a white person, I need to figure out why this is happening in my neighborhood. Right. why we think that this is acceptable and what we're going to do about it. And I met Jean um, at a meeting for the Washington Legal Clinic for the Homeless. 
Okay. I had just returned home for, uh, to DC. I've been working in homelessness work in Chicago for nearly six years prior. And I was trying to get a feel about what was going on racially and socially in the district now that I was home. And we met and she says, I really wanna move from the education around privilege and whiteness to action. You're an organizer. Um, I looked you up, I read some of the things that you've done. Um, come join me. And that's how I became her, co her co-coordinator and lead organizer. So, um, wow. and then we met. <laughs> yeah, right. We keep, the, it keeps happening, right? You meet one and then you meet another one. Um, I want to ask about the woman who was, who ended up handcuffed. Like how you go from a uh, housewarming to handcuffed on your lawn. Was that, do you know, was it like a resisting arrest? Like I'm imagining some neighbor must have, maybe somebody thought that this music is too loud. Is that? Um, Honestly, I think yeah. a lot of people of color ask themselves how they end up in these situations. One second, everything's fine. Exactly. And the next second, it's not. And that switch in safety, I think, is, is, um, is, is the real question. Um, but no, I mean, this is a, this is a, a law-abiding citizen. Yep. And, um, as you know, she was not resisting arrest. I think she was as shocked by the turn of events as... Um, as everybody was but hmm. i mean this type of story yeah unfortunately is no longer even common it is like it's completely commonplace yeah at, at yeah. this juncture a, a kid's selling waters on the sidewalk and they yeah. get arrested people are barbecuing in a park and the cops intervene um you know you can be driving along you know five over the speed limit and yeah. boom and somehow this turns into a situation where guns are drawn and your life is in danger. I, I, sh I should say for people who, who may not be aware that and I'm a teacher and in addition to teaching, I hold workshops and presentations and things to help teachers know how to better incorporate race in their classrooms. Because I believe that if you start, like even at the preschool level, teaching kids, um, helping them get used to difference and, and understanding that like, oh, I'm making a judgment based on just how this person looks and I shouldn't do that. Like if that starts early, that, you know, can help. My, my goal is to hope, hopefully help make that thing happen. But one of the things that I say um, that you just touched on that I teach about in workshops is this idea that um, teaching that everybody is the same is dangerous. And if it, were, if it weren't for cell phones, you know, the good thing about cell phones is that they were able to record these things that people have been saying for years. This cop just pulled me over for nothing. This cop just handcuffed me. For, I actually didn't do anything. The problem with teaching kids that everybody is the same is that by the time you're in high school, maybe middle school, but like if you're white and you have black friends and you, you know, you're, you've been taught since elementary and middle, you're all the same. And then suddenly you're, you, you, the white people are seeing their black friends getting arrested and they're like, oh, they, they must have done something because we're all the same. I'm not getting arrested. So they must have done something. So, um, so I appreciate you pointing out the thing that like, that's how people just end up and like they actually haven't done something and it came to light because of cell phones and such. Right? Well, also, it was so funny because Jean um, hosts a lot of our meetings where we met, right? And these right. are gatherings sometimes of up to 40 people. Yes. You know, um, and they're loud. I mean, 40 nice. people Forty people in and of itself talking is one thing, but we're leading workshops. We've got people like standing up and sharing. We there's had a dinner. poster baking party. There's dinner, there's drinks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it becomes not just um, an organizing event. Um, That's and so interesting. Educate and where we have solidarity, but it also becomes a social gathering and not once. 
for all of those cars parked on the street, for all of the noise that we make. Uh, we were doing a sign making party when we were standing in solidarity with Brooklyn Manor. There had to be 40 some people in the house. I think we counted afterwards. Yeah. Um, and we had the front door open what? and people were out on the front patio with like markers and stuff spread out because they were making these posters yeah. and not once did Ooh. an authority figure appear. So that, I mean, that even speaks to more of like <clears throat> the fact that she's new to the neighborhood, the fact that it was quote unquote loud, but also the guests, you know, I imagine it's her housewarming. So she had guests, probably relatives who mm -hmm. looked like her. Exactly. Like, Wait, who are all these people coming? Ugh. That's a, it's a, that like drives me nuts. And that, and, th and that event in and of itself, Regine um, said that there's something that we're doing um, as white people that is making people who move into this neighborhood. Now, these are clearly people of, um, as Jean learned, this is somebody of the same um, socioeconomic level as her. This yeah. is somebody of the same um, educational level as her and her husband. Uh, the woman in question was a lawyer, so so is Jean and, and her spouse. Yeah. Um, you know, she has children just like Jean does. So what's, what, is, what is the marker of difference and why am I being treated differently? And it became pretty clear. Right. Um, that race was at the heart of this. And so she did something that I've always admired her for. And the reason that I sort of joined um, and, and helped shape the mission of this group is that uh, Toni Morrison has this really famous interview where she says, well, like, how do you feel about your race? Like, if you take your race away, mm. who are you? Yeah. Are you still kind? Are you still as good? Are you still as, as smart? You know, like that those are the questions. And right. you, meaning white people, she was speaking to a white man, have to decide what you are going to do about that. And so Jean and basically took on that mandate. Once again, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Alexandra Bailey. The woman she is referring to is Jean Simons, who founded DC Neighbors for Racial Justice, which is now being run by Alexandra Bailey, who happens to be on the ballot this November. Make sure you go out and vote. She's running to be the advisory neighborhood commissioner for 2F08 in Ward 2. Um, that's in DC. Let's keep listening. And I was I was just so incredibly impressed by that as a uh, as as a woman of color, yeah, um, a black and, and native woman who was was raised in an environment that made me super uncomfortable. And I it it, it took me into adulthood actually before mm -hmm. I was able to look back um, through a racial lens at my own life, yeah, um, and sort of work through kind of what had happened there because I was raised as to your point, with very much this concept of we're all the same. Race doesn't matter. Uh-huh. That's unfortunate. It's, it's who you are. It's what you achieve. It's how hard you work. Um, this this incredible, like, false narrative that is exactly. so incredibly pervasive. I am hands down one of its victims. You know, um, getting back to your point about, um, well, and you just said it again, like, you, it's what you achieve. It's how hard you work. And you mentioned that um, the woman who ended up arrested um was at the same sort of financial level the same education level as Jean. and you think there is this this false myth of meritocracy there is this myth and this notion that like you can um that it because of your level of success because you have more money and because you're academically you know have more degrees and stuff that you can level the playing field mm -hmm. um but it's not i mean it helps but it is not like it's time and time again, it's shown that that's not to be the case. And that's why you can have like 
kids like at an independent school um, where maybe their families are, maybe their families are super wealthy, like kids of color, maybe they're super wealthy, or maybe they are um, middle class or what, what have you, but like they're not hurting for money and there still be an achievement gap. You know, so it's not, there's so much proof that there's not this thing. And you tell kids, you can be what you want and you can, you can, um, you, you know, be successful and do all these things. And, and the, the, some of this other stuff, you won't have these problems, but life shows us otherwise. And, and the thing that really breaks my heart about that, yeah. um, in the limited, in the limited amount of teaching that I've done, because mostly in my life, I've taught adults. Okay. Um, but for a lot of the younger organizers that I've had in college and things like that, the, the real tragedy that comes out of that for me, and I, this also happened to me, a lot of brilliant, smart, creative young people think they're not going through that system. They think they're dumb. And then they carry that narrative through life. Yeah. Um, and it, it takes you a long time and usually probably yeah. some therapy, which we do not have access to, you know, yeah. basically in this society to work yourself out of a system that has told you yep. you are not enough. And then if you do manage to achieve and you do everything right, yep. you move into the suburban neighborhood, you've become a lawyer, you're married, you have a cohesive family. You, she's even great looking you know just like everything is right and you end up cuffed on your own front yard at at an event at an event at on your property that you own i mean how embarrassing too or how humiliating you know i'm sure humiliating was 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 on our side and yelling at the cops or whoever you know doing whatever but it's just like this is like I am showing you, I am proud of who I am. And then you are going to come and humiliate me. Like, well, I mean, she did something that is completely just not out of the ordinary. Yeah. I've had a housewarming party for every apartment and home that I've ever lived I in. I had them for apartments too. <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a completely commonplace event. This is nothing um, particularly shocking. I guess it was, it was also, I believe during the summer or spring yep. where being outdoor barbecuing, having friends over is, a, is, is the great American pastime. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's like, you know, you always have to look at the great American pastime and then put the, the, the qualifier of race on top of that right. and see how it goes for you. Who, I forget who's, where I got this, but like, do you have the complexion for the protection, as they say? Um, and you don't always, if you, if you don't, you don't. Um, all right. I want to circle back to like thinking about um, private schools and, and what that's like. And, and so I want to touch on that in terms of access. I think people feel like they are a space for like a lot of access. And then I also want to touch on you talking about seeing yourself the things you didn't see until later in life like the the you went back and was like oh i'll look through this racially especially like you mentioned being biracial so that's another layer so let's start with private school because you did some public and some private private yeah so i started out in public school when i was growing up in um when i was a little girl uh my father had remarried and we were living in um pennsylvania at the time oh okay and uh, I started in public school there, okay. and I was bullied so extremely. No. Okay, why were you bullied? Did race, was it, or was it about, was your heart? I, I mean, I don't, I don't really know, right? Because I'm looking back in retrospect, right? And I haven't had a chance to talk to these people, so I really can't say. Gotcha, yeah. You know, but it's, this, my perception was, or my perception is now, looking back on it, mm -hmm. I was, um, I'm a light-skinned black woman. 
Okay. And um, I had very, very, I have very, uh, at the time I, I have long hair now, but I had very, very long, almost waist length curly hair okay. when I was a little girl. And I remember it getting pulled all the time. Okay. Cool. And I ended up in a situation where I kind of got dragged around the recess yard. And so the whole front of my body ended up being a scab and my dad had to come like pick me up from school early. And dragged as as, by your hair? Yeah. Oh, ouch. I'm glad it didn't like get yanked out. Okay. Um, and then my father was like, that's it. We're putting, we're putting her in private school. Now we had the option for me to do that. Right. So like, you know, that's my privilege talking. Right. Um, yes. But there was, there, there was, um, there's a whole conversation right. that happens around colorism. Yeah. Um, and yeah. who gets treated how based on, as you put it, the complexion that provides protection. Yes. So I think I was in a situation probably where I was being treated differently. Um, and by differently, I mean being given preference. Mm. Yes. Yeah. You know what? Um, privilege, you named that that's your privilege to be able to go to a private school. And I want to just interject really quick to point out to um, listeners, everybody has some kind of privilege. I want to put that out there because I've met um, I've come across white people who deny that white privilege exists or, <laughs> or they'll say, well, we're all privileged at something. Yes, there are privileges that even as a black person, you can have over another group. Um, maybe you're a heterosexual black person who has some more rights than somebody who is trans or, or LGBT. Like, however, in addition, within that, the white privilege, there is a lot more privileges afforded. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to, I want to kind of, and these are statistically borne out, you know, um, in yes. terms of like median incomes of households, um, in terms of, um, academic, um, achievement and access, right. um, you know, yes. and as you spoke that there's a gap, even when there's at the same economic level, um, yes. you know, that women of color died disproportionately in childbirth yes. versus their white counterparts. Right. You know, regardless of education and um, economic status, there's whole there's whole healthcare. I mean, there's so much. Okay, but so education. We're talking about education. <laughs> yeah, but back to you. So you were able to go to the private school, and then you were mentioning colorism, which again, I mean, colorism was born out of like the the lighter is better. You know, like the the closer you are to lightness, whiteness in in the society, it's just deemed better so that's a whole other set of work that happens within the black community so you so now you're at this private school and you're getting preferential treatment because of your complexion because of your I mean a public school I got preferential treatment because I was around I was in a much more diverse environment gotcha then switch to private school where I am the only black person uh I'm the only one that still happens and that's that's so interesting that that still (laughs) happens to this day it's like what is going on with the recruitment, right? Uh-huh. It's still like it, the numbers are better in some schools, but there are schools where some kids are still the only one, yeah, in a class or in a grade, yeah. Yeah, I, I went to private Catholic school. Um, there were no dark-skinned Black people there. There was, there was me. There were a couple of stu- uh, students who were of Asian descent. I believe there were two or three Black girls that I can remember who were in the lower school, little girls um but that was it that was the entirety of the environment and the entirety of the rest of the environment was white it was a a a religious school which really didn't jive with me and it was the place where um i think i experienced what i consider to be sort of the most um spiritual and i believe in a thing called like academic abuse okay what can you do you want to elaborate? where like you you a lot of times based on race it's not that this kid is struggling academically, they're lazy. Yeah. 
And so you literally talk a child out of their own intelligence. Unfortunately. Or you talk a child out of their unique learning style, which actually like thinking differently might be the reason that they invent something great one day. That, that's exactly. Yep. Um, it, it, it talks us out of originality, which is what we need for progress, original thought. Yes. So I avoided school. I was always somebody who could do well at school, but I avoided school. I hated it. Mm. I actively so hated it. Public, people, private, both? You just hated? I mean, I mean, public school, I, I enjoyed. I had a, a couple of teachers, I, I recall, as a little girl, really enjoying. Public um, was the place where the drag hair incident Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had social problems at public school, but actually really enjoyed some of my teachers who I, whom I remember being particularly kind to me. Okay. There was one history teacher in particular who I really, really loved. But when I got to private school, I, I, I mean, I was somebody who, I was so socially isolated when I was at private school that during recess, I wouldn't go outside. I would go to the library and I would hide in the stacks and I would read. Mm. So when, I'm going to pause you once more, thinking about um, this choice of where to send your child and you want to make the best choice and as a parent the news the media or just like growing up in a space like what you hear a lot is that public schools very often are not the best choice so you want to send your child like you've got to have the best you got to have the best and you go the private school route and there are um lots of positives to private schools mm -hmm. um so that's not to say that they're not good centers for learning that's not to say that at all there is something you know like you you think you know as a person of color but you don't if you're not a part of the school if you're not a teacher if you are just everyday american you could be a lawyer you could be a doctor you could be the person that works at cvs you know mm -hmm. whoever you are if you're not a teacher you generally don't know what like what what it's what it's like what the private school public school you just know that your kid is going to go and get an education and you hear that these are the better routes and so you're not thinking about race or gender or color or colorism or you're not thinking about a lot of identity factors as a parent. You're just thinking, I'm sending my kid here to get the best experience. And um, this is also the time where they're forming an identity where, you know, like being in middle school, junior high and high school is uncomfortable yes. anyway. And it really is identity forming time. Right. And a lot of what I think the way you form a lot of your identity has to do with the people you hang out with how much you're included or how much you're excluded mm, yeah right and there's the the idea that these schools because they have a lot more money than public schools that because the um, teacher to student ratio is so low you know you're going to get this teaching in these small groups you're going to get the attention you need and you're going to have access to so many things just because of the money these schools have but and, and like I couldn't have cared less about the academics. I found them intensely boring. They didn't teach I mean like they didn't even teach history as I see it now. Yeah. And I knew something was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Like I knew something was wrong. It, it was depression causing for me as a kid. Mm -hmm. But I didn't I thought it was my fault. Huh. And I had been dubbed lazy. Okay. So, 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 so I thought I was, I was lazy and dumb. Ugh. It turns out I was dyslexic, didn't get diagnosed as dyslexic until my freshman year of college, went to a top private school, totally missed it. What? Mm-hmm. And I know, I feel like there's a lot of testing for that that happens now. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, never, never was tested until my freshman year. They thought that I, I ended up 
often um, being yelled at and my father being called into school because I would understand the concept in class and like yes. I could tell them I could, I could tell them what the concept was or I could answer something yeah. and then I would get to the bubble exam and I would fail miserably and they thought I was doing it deliberately to be rebellious so you know I think now, looking back to racial lens, rather than saying, maybe Alexandra's struggling in some yeah. way, emotionally, socially, and this is affecting her schoolwork uh -huh. um, and, her, and her desire to want to participate. I was lazy. I was problematic. I was rebellious. And okay. I don't think that that had anything to do with re truly actually being any of those things. I was somebody who very much wanted to please. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes this this story makes me wonder about like what unfortunately happened with like group thought, like lumping people into a group. So you know, there was a stereotype. There was, there is, is. a stereotype with um, about black people being lazy, not trying. When the black people that I know, like I, I don't. I mean, I might know a couple of lazy black people. I know a couple of lazy white people. Like any group has some lazy members, I guess. But like so many of them have like two jobs and three jobs. It's like, you're far from lazy. You haven't been given an opportunity an opportunity to show that you can excel in, in certain arenas because that's where it comes in. It's like, you can work as hard as you want. You can be as smart as you want. But if you don't get that opportunity, like what, what what's it all mean? Honestly, I've never really met a lazy child. Right. I, I don't even know if I believe in the concept yeah. and I'm not a teacher and I, I don't have a degree in academics. You know, my, my, my world is all political, political and, and organizing and things like that. But I mean, my personal belief system is, is that everybody has things that they're good at, that light them up, that yeah. inspire them, that drive them, that put energy in. And yes, there is um, a persistence aspect to things, but that is a learned habit. Okay that we can foster right. in children. Yeah. But we live in a zero sum game where you're a failure. You, yeah. You're either a success or you're a failure. Whereas usually you have to fail quite a bit. You have to be bad at something usually for quite a bit of time before you're, you're actually right. good at it. Uh, until you're good at it, yes. Right. I mean, nobody picks up the violin for the first time and, and, and it, you know, or, or the cello and his yo-yo ma, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yo-yo ma, even he always jokes, you know, that he's, you know, he's one of the most famous cellists in the world. He still practices, like he said, like four or five, six hours a day. Wow. He, he says, I think I'm improving. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I mean, we, it's, it's not that kind of environment. Like, you know, we throw a concept at a kid, do you get it or not? And those are the successes and the failures. So actually what we, praise is is um uh like you know this this sort of innate talent myth yeah and i think too to another point you made earlier what gets praised is the norm quote unquote like if you're an out if you are thinking differently or showing it differently or presenting it differently there there is often a um a desire to bring you back over to mm -hmm. a similar lane I mean, and this feeds not just into racism, but also ableism. Um, and, and this concept that everybody cognitively is the same, and of course we're not. Yeah, right. When you mentioned being um, biracial, can you talk about that? Like what the races of your parents, and then you, your parents divorced and you live with a different parent? Like, so I was raised by my father predominantly. Um, my father, uh, so I was raised by a single black father. Let's okay. just bust all the black father myths. <laughs> um, 
she kept right you out, with him <laughs> right out the gate yeah. um I was I was raised by a single black father um so my story actually happened in the reverse um my mother uh left for um uh what turned out to be a rather um uh, intense um, and abusive relationship with uh with substance mm. and um and my father and my my the, the, my black family as it were my mother um her family is a uh, part eastern european Pian, um, part Irish and part Native American, from what I understand. Oh, and, your mother's family. Yes, my mother's family. Um, okay. But my father, uh, his side of the family is all from the South, from, from Louisiana. Oh, okay. And um, I very much grew up in a Black family that was very into respectability politics. Oh. And um, I was the eldest child, so I was the first pancake. <laughs> Wait, uh, for anybody who isn't familiar with respectability politics, what do you mean when you say that? Um, so respectability politics um, has, has a long history, which I, I really can't expound on, um, okay. you know, in the course of a podcast. But basically, it is the concept that as a person of color, mm-hmm. um, by being twice as good um, at everything, um, by... Yes. Um, deliberately sidestepping every stereotype about okay. black people um the that way, that, way we, the way that we eat the way that we dress um right straightening your hair rather than wearing it in its natural state uh-huh. um basically creating as much proximity and assimilation to whiteness as possible yikes yep that sounds like the that kind of thinking comes from a good place they're like i just want my child to make it and safety, yeah. I mean, it, it's not stupid thinking. Yes, right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, my my father was um, grew up in Tunica, Louisiana, and started his own business and and made a success of himself, and wow. wanted me to take the the next step for our family as he saw it. Okay. Um, you know, so that meant achieving academically. That meant going to um, a great college that would have been out of reach even a generation before his yeah um out of reach even i would say for him okay so when you so he's from louisiana but then you started out life in pennsylvania yeah pennsylvania and washington dc is where i was where i was where i was born and raised okay and uh yeah so my dad moved up here started a business um had me at i want to say like 27 or 28 years old was a single parent and i grew up in his businesses which was great for me and like in its own kind of unique academic experience yeah that's quite a learning i I actually i actually wish work was far more child and family inclusive in america because that was one of my greatest learning experiences Hmm, okay um, you know, because uh, I started out by answering phones for my yeah. dad when I was about six or seven years old. What? And, and it teaches you to be able to talk to people. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And it teaches you to, like, you, gotta, you might have to write down a message, right? You might have to carry information from there to here to there. Yeah, answering phones is you get the customer service skills. Early. Yeah, you know, you can you have to absorb of inf- information and translate it to another person, which yeah. is a skill that we have to to teach children. Um, yeah. And I think um, the practical application of skill uh-huh. is one of the ways that I learn best. And it's I guess it's really no surprise that I went into organizing and the political world, whereby um, the application of legislative policy is, well, is I'm where, thinking, I'm thinking where I'm at. I'm thinking about also 
the more that I've had as a teacher have had dyslexic, dyslexic students, their ability to hold on to information and transfer to listen to a story like those kids are they love books they want you to read the books to them they can tell you that whole story back like you know i know one of the things i learned about dyslexia was like if there's a word on the page that it might say kitten but if there's a picture that looks like a cat they're gonna say cat like instead of because you can see a picture but like a monday or january those things are hard because there's nothing to like visualize that in, but in terms of like having a story and being able to reproduce it and being able to speak, like some of your best, most creative minds were people who were dyslexic. And then, so I'm thinking about you also organizing, you've got to be able to reach a lot of people and talk to and get on your side. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that um, I think because I was, I think I am, I mean, I think now as an adult, having been in academia for a lot longer, that I am somebody who is academically talented in the the traditional sense. Mm -hmm. That is a very new development in my, that came in my adult life. So in childhood, my crutch was performance art. And I really succeeded at performance art because not only would I know my part, I would know everybody else's part and I would hear something once and I could repeat it to you verbatim, um, which... Wait, was this happening at schools? This was happening at schools. See, this is like, how was, how was it missed? Like a lot of it, this was missed. Right, but I think it had to do with race. I look back at my life through a race, race, racial lens. Yeah. Easier narrative for them was that I was lazy and uninterested. Do you feel like, did you know students who were not of color that maybe were getting assistance or tested or help? Like, do you? Oh, 100%. Um, there, there were some kids who, who struggled just as much. Um, but I mean, every, every other student at school was willing to adopt this narrative that the kids put on me. Um, and so that also socially isolated me. Yeah. Um, and so I really just felt deeply uncomfortable. And I didn't understand, of course, at the time as a child without the, the language and, and the understanding of race, privilege, um, yeah. how, how privilege um, for people of color actually is not a protection, but actually can paint a target on you. If you're here and you're amongst us, you need to be like us. And if you're not... Hmm. the punishment will be twice as severe. And that was really my experience um, in my middle and junior high years. So, okay, we are, this is Fred's listeners. You're listening to Daily Border Crossings and talking to Alexandra Bailey. And one of the things that I thought (laughs) that I was going to be, I thought maybe share a couple of childhood things, but I really thought that we'd be hearing a lot about like adult life stuff. And I'm sure there's still some of those, but like a lot of adult life stuff where you're crossing. But like this we have happened upon some prime examples like that is total border crossing. Like you had to keep showing up at this place and like it's teachers that are labeling. And so now it's students that are labeling and every freaking day you had to keep showing up. Like you have to get up in the morning and mentally get ready to know that this happy life I have at home, like I'm happy and I'm happy in the car, the bus or however you got to school. Um, you know you're gonna have to turn that off, right? For the- it was it was anxiety and depression causing for me as a child without any of the language to describe it. It was a real struggle. I actually like I look back on it now and it was a real struggle. But I mean, I guess the being sort of forged out of that fire now yeah. is that I'm somebody who like my friends always joke that you know um, most people have fight or flight and I only have fight. <laughs> 
Wait, what is that? Because I want, is it because you couldn't fly? No, so like now as an organizer, they're like somebody announces a problem and other people like, you know, you just charge right at it. Yeah, maybe because you had to deal for so long that like you like, I never could run. So I had to learn fight. Yeah. So, so that border now, like to me is just like yes. a completely permeable membrane. Good. I think one of the things I was going to get to um, is what, well, I mean, you, one of the things I was going to ask about, like what you thought that did to a person, but like you've certainly shared what that can do. And, and I thought about like the implications. Um, so that shares, that's the implications for students, but also the implications for teachers. It's uh, sometimes there, there seem to be none because so many people don't even, so many people are oblivious to that this is happening to students of color, to colleagues of color, to people of color in those environments. So there's not often any um, implications sometimes or any, I don't know, changing that the teachers have to do because they, people, it goes unnoticed. I mean, with everything that teachers face in this country, and I mean, I cannot think of a more undervalued, underpaid, um, you know, under-resourced profession Yes, off the top of my head. So we're like social workers and the ones that work in schools, like, you know, like seriously, to all the teachers out there, thank you very much, especially yeah. during these times. You guys are my heroes. Right. But um, I think when, for, for teachers to truly be in an environment where they can truly maximize students, not just academically, but as people. And you cannot separate those two things. Yes, right. And, and create a whole healthy person, right? You would have to have teachers so dedicated to what Jean did, whereby she said, you know what? We have a toxic environment here about achievement. We have a toxic environment here about race. We yep. have a toxic, you're in a co-ed setting about um, sports, sexuality, you name it. Right. Yep. You got it. Yep. And then you have to get about culture change. And academia is so entrenched in the model of not just who we're supposed to be as human beings, but how we survive as human beings in a capitalist society. Right. That that level of change making on top of what you need to do academically, on top of what you need to teach them socially, um, and on top of the ordinate amount of emotional labor that teachers um, who care um, about their students have to do is one hell of an ask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, agreed. And I think it's, 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 a, it's a hell of an ask. It's a hell of an important ask, though, for students like you, for students of color. And it's an ask that, quite frankly, is being, I don't, it's, I don't know if I would say it's being asked of or just say it is being taken on by a lot of teachers of color. So mm -hmm. think of like everything that you just said and the academic piece and the being held to a standard where you feel like, okay, I can't mess this up. Like, I don't have any leeway for that. And then you take on this, you see these students of color and you're like, come talk to me, come see me, let me check on you, let me make sure you're okay. Like you, you try to help them not feel isolated. Um, and so you're pushing for that in addition to your regular everyday job. Um, and then the it regular almost, program. <laughs> yes, right. And it almost, what, what the unfortunate thing that happens a lot is because you're a person of color, it almost gets seen as, well, of course you'd be doing, you know, that's, that's your, mm -hmm. that's your job. And it's like, and the it's dismissed. Of, yeah. So the and you're dismissed because of racism, yeah. trying to protect students from racism. Exactly. It's ridiculous. It's like the amount of teachers that I meet that are of color that take on all this, 
that are like up late at night, up early, staying late, because it's like having two jobs. You're not getting extra pay, but like those are the ones that need to be acknowledged and rewarded. And, and, um, and like, not that, not to say that all teachers aren't being heroes, but when you do do this thing that you just said, when you try to push for a culture shifter, try to do these extra things, like it would, it's nice for that to be acknowledged too, for that to be sort of, um, here's more of a standard. A lot of this doesn't get taught necessarily in undergrad or grad school, but because also of racism, um, a lot of teachers who are not of color look to learn from teachers that look like them. And there's so much to learn from a person of color and a teacher of color, because if you've been through it, if you've experienced so much, then you've learned lessons and there's so much to, to, um, that you can learn from a person of color. And this is why the DC Neighbors started out as a group that started getting white people to unpack their privilege and to see it and to acknowledge it and to start to shift because in academic environments whereby still the predominant amount of most professions are white folks. um, And Uh that's certainly true in academia and that becomes even more true the higher up and the more privileged the environment gets. Yep. Um, You you are not like this culture change cannot happen by a bunch of um, black educators erecting shields mm-hmm. because they're as in, as with everything, they're not going to be able to protect their students from everything. Right. Right. So the yeah. students have like sort of one of two choices, either you harden yourself to it. Yeah. Or if you were like me who, I mean, was a particularly sort of, I was actually like a very artistic very sensitive child. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, actually, I'm a very sensitive person now. I mean, and now I see that as one of my great strengths mm-hmm. in terms of empathy and compassion. But that yeah. was not something that was developed in me. Do, would you, like, how, did you, like, as an adult, you realize you had to cultivate that? Is that? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as, I, I think actually what I did as a child is I protected it. Uh. I hid it. Mm. Like way down in myself. Yeah. And then when I started running homeless ministries, I was like, this is my greatest skill. Mm. Yeah. Right. That was completely undeveloped in me. Mm. Yeah. But you do, it does get undeveloped because you're like, I can't show this because you feel like you're showing weakness, right? You exactly. Have to, you have to be, you, you got to survive. You got <laughs> to survive. survive. Yeah. Right? And And not just your teachers, but the kids, right? Because like bullying is a real thing, right? You can't be that sensitive kid. So I always gravitated to to the artistic kids. But the thing was, is that when I was in junior high and middle school, I was, I was so into drama. Um, I had watched every old black and white movie that you could ever imagine. I would study scripts. I was reading books on acting at the time. And I remember we did a production of Bye Bye Birdie and I wasn't even permitted to audition for the lead role. Because? Only girls who were blonde and blue-eyed were allowed to audition because in the film, um, yeah. the, the actress was, was light-haired and, and, and white. And so yeah. breaking that was not permitted. So I was a background character and I worked backstage and that was what I was allowed to do when you knew in your heart you would have rocked it probably better way better than whoever ended up being oh it was funny because when i i would i got mad about it right so i I remember this i ended up getting in trouble because i would go around while i was setting up set and i would sing the songs (laughs) and to this day like vivid memory i remember killing it Mm. 
I knew this soundtrack backwards and forward. I could sing everybody's part. I could switch voices. And I remember the, the person that the school hired to run this production was just like looking at me and he was like, yeah, I got it. Go backstage. <laughs> so unfair. But this is, this is another example of like opportunity. You got all the skill, you got all the talent, you got all the line, you know, all the stuff, but this is the thing where like, if you are a person of color in this country, you learn at some point, you're going to have these limitations placed on you that other people don't have to, to deal with. And so you're like, here I am showing, I'm showing by doing, um, but yeah, well, get back. Like, wait, see, like the opportunity isn't there. What do you think? Um, I know something I wanted to ask is like about teachers for students who feel like this and, and I might, have to have you on another time because I want to talk about <laughs> adults too. Um, I would love that. <laughs> and in these spaces, you have colleagues that will lead you to feel like, wait, what? I'm second guessing myself. I, I just said that thing that you're saying now. I just had that idea, but you just owned it. Like, are you hearing me? I think sometimes one of the unfortunate things, <clears throat> especially with feminism, is um, there's a thing, there's a femi there's white feminism that's just mm -hmm. called feminism. And then there's, there can be feminism that is inclusive of everybody. But one of the things that I feel like happens with um, uh, white feminism is. If it's I, not intersectional, it's not feminism as far as I'm concerned, but I know what you're saying. Exactly. <laughs> right. And it it's needs to be intersectional. Um, but there, it's white women who consider feminists, many of the ones that I meet and many people, women of color will come talk to me at workshops and ask me what to do about this. I'm like, I could keep, I can try to keep talking about it, but they're so hung up on what men are not allowing them to do what men are doing wrong, what, um, you know, men aren't opening doors and, and, and helping them. Okay, let me break in here for a second to interject some clarification. What I mean here is not physically opening doors, although I believe that is polite. It's nice for chivalry to not be dead, but what I'm referring to here is opening proverbial doors of opportunity in traditional male spaces in roles that had traditionally been occupied by men, right? So opening doors to those roles and spaces for women and people who don't look like all the others who had traditionally been there. Nominating women for promotions, not dismissing women's thoughts and words, not overlooking them, taking them seriously, following their lead, giving credence to their ideas and so on. So these are things that women who call themselves feminists, especially white women feminists, very often name loudly as issues that men have. And in my own experiences and those of many women of color who, who share similar thoughts with me, these women are quick to point these sorts of things out about men, but they are missing something big time. And that's my point here. Okay, now back to the show. Let's pick up where we left off to see what is being missed. I hope that it's not intentional. I try to give this as an out, but like they're, they're uh, appear to be oblivious to the fact they're doing that same thing to women of color, right? Like it's like, wait, but you're, you're hiring other people that look like you. You're, um, you're not necessarily stopping to consider our needs in the same way you would be mad if a man did that. I'll pause that though for, and, and, and that can be a topic for another time. I yeah, imagine I mean, that you've seen it. Oh yeah. 100%. I mean, um, I mean, when it comes to unconscious biases, yeah. Um, it's, it's incredible and pervasive and the, the dedication to perfectionism in our society 
right. um, really makes us not open to self-improvement in a lot of ways, particularly when it comes to things like racism, sexism, um, ableism, I mean, pick a, you know, pick an ism. Right, yes. Um, and so there's really not this, there needs to be more of a movement, actually, I would, I would think about about personal self-improvement because I have blind spots just like everybody everybody else does exactly um I guess I guess the difference is is that I'm going to be like I hear that I hear you I see you that go figure out how I'm going to do this and honestly I mean I remember the like I was very resistant for a very long time because I was so into this perfectionist narrative and as I've described Mm -hmm. from my childhood I was very wounded for a lot of years by that so I had all kinds of guards and shields up um but I remember the first time like somebody just said to me like that they hear me they see me um you know and that you know it's okay that you were wrong yeah and I was just like I mean it was it was one of those it was one of those paradigm shift moments for me in my life yeah um, and it, it opened me up to going back to re-examine my life through this lens of race and what I was educated into. Yeah. And then um, on top of everything that, you know, we bring with us from our families and things like that and, and trauma and multi-generational trauma. Right. Um, then you have to sort of go through this process of re-educating yourself and pulling out of the formal education you received what is true and what is not. Right. From a purely academic standpoint, but then also what you were taught about yourself. Well, you mentioned like the amount of times where you ask yourself, like you thought it was your fault. I thought I thought something was wrong with me. And then you grow up later and you're like, wait, maybe it wasn't me. I went through the rest of my academic career up till college. Yeah, it's a long time. Really uninterested um, in study outside of myself, mind you, to this day, and it's funny that you said that about what you said about dyslexic children, because I, to this day, I'm an avid reader. Um, I'm actually part of a, a, a book club where we try to read 52 books a year. Mm. I mean, in my house, I literally don't have side tables in certain places. It's just stacks of books. <laughs> um, and truly one of my lifelong loves. So I really spent a lot of time self-educating. Yeah. Because what was happening academically was surrounded by so much racism and all of these other things. And I found myself really unable to cross that border effectively. Mm. I was not one of those people who could fake it till she made it. Yeah. Um, And again, emotional authenticity is a good thing. Yeah. But it wasn't seen as a good thing in a little black girl in an all white school. Right. 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 What do you think um, teachers should know or do, what can teachers do differently? Like, what would you say? Because I think that um, a lot of the audience I for this show, I imagine, will be probably more than teachers, but I think a lot of them will be teachers and will be educators. But also there will be people who are just, um, maybe you're an uncle or not, who, you know, you've got your niece or your nephew in that school. Maybe your godchild is in school and you, you'd like to be an advocate. Like, what are these things that grownups need to know and teachers need to know, um, would you say? I think, um, or, I, I or mean, do, or do differently or do differently. I mean, and don't, and like I said, I, I am not a full-time teacher, so I completely accept that I'm completely talking from the cheap seats here. Yeah. Um, but being friends with a lot of teachers um, and having organized around um, a lot of the things that um, fail mm-hmm. our children, um, 
and our teachers, I would say that for, for white teachers, I would say get into your unconscious biases. Dig in. That is your work. Um, not just so that you can not be harmful to your students of color, but so that you can be a shining example for your students who are not. Yes. And that you can come from a true place of authenticity of teaching them what privilege is and not to necessarily just be guilty about their privilege, but to realize how they can use it effectively to make the world a better place for other people. And they exist in a world with people who are different than them. Um, I would say like, and, and I think when you do that work on your unconscious biases, you're going to learn to respect and celebrate difference. Um, and I think that that is going to add dimension to your students' lives. It's going to allow them to have friendships they wouldn't have otherwise. It's going to open up their world to different areas of academic study that might interest them. Mm -hmm. They might become much more interested in language studies when they have, you know, a student they can practice their Spanish or Chinese or Arabic or whatever the case might be with. Yeah. The, I mean, the world changes when we stop seeing each other in, in these negative lights. And honestly, like, I mean, and this is just the personal chip on my shoulder. Yes. Please stop calling students lazy, <laughs> untalented. Please stop labeling students because I tell you what, you carry that badge for years. And the more, and the more a child is acting out, my theory has always been the more sensitive that child probably is, the more hurt that child probably is. Um, and so they, they will carry that with them. I mean, I remember to this day, the day that I was told that, like I literally in my mind right now can see that moment where I was standing in the classroom. So this was said out loud to you? Like This or... was said out loud to me. Yes, this was said out loud to me. And I've what? had many conversations with, with, with black people, particularly um, black women, mm. who've talked about the day they got labeled as something. Mm, that's a whole, I'm telling, okay, so that's, that's a, that and it's just like a great there. for a number yeah. of you know, for like maybe four or five of people to like all share these stories at the same time. Yeah. Um, so what, what do you remember? Like what it was that was said? Like, was it in front of the class? Like what? Oh was- yeah. So we were working on reports. Yes. And um, I was one of the few people that had an Apple at the time as opposed to a PC. And I was trying, I didn't know how to do conversion at the time. Right. Cause like a lot of this was, was new. Yeah. And I, I remember I was, um, I had chosen a black author to write about, and I guess the teacher felt that I hadn't put in enough effort to this essay. I remember I was standing by a tall standing desk that was over by a window. I can't even remember what my teacher was wearing. And, and she was just like, you know, your problem is that you're just lazy. What? And I, rem- and I, I mean, vivid memory to the day. And I bet you a lot of people. Yeah. Could go back through their childhood. Yeah. And remember that moment where they were either made to feel that they were smart and exceptional and they carried that with them. Yeah. Or the moment that they were made to feel that they weren't good enough and they carry that with them too. Yeah. Whether that happened at home, whether it happened at school, some combination yeah. thereof. Yeah. Children absorb everything we tell them. This is true. This is true. Was this middle high school? Uh, this was middle school. Middle. Ugh. And then you don't like what you've been taught to be respectful. What are you supposed to say back to that? Like you just crushed me in front of the class. Mm-hmm. There's no, nobody else to look at like me in here. I can't like look over at the other black kid and be like, oh, can you believe she did that? Like, you know, or he like, there's so many things. And if you don't have parents with the emotional intelligence to help you reverse that narrative, you carry that narrative. And I did. 
I did really until I was, I really came to sort of the age of reason. Mm. Do you remember sharing that with your dad? No, no. I was so ashamed. Mm. I was so ashamed because that's what that does to children. It teaches children um, this, this incredible sense of shame about themselves. Uh. And that doesn't stay in one area. Uh, now I'm thinking like you're, you, why I can't tell my dad this because he'll know that I'm lazy. Like I've been called lazy. I must be lazy. And I can't on top of everything else. I'll get in trouble. Yeah. Mm. Was this a white teacher? Yes. Just checking. Um, I had all white teachers at that school. Ah, you know, there's articles about just the, having one teacher that looks like you, like what that can do for your, what that can do for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, it's interesting um, because now I find myself going through um, various type of academic environments, teaching, organizing and other things and, yeah. you know, lecturing and, and all of these sorts of things. And I find myself very much cognizant of what I went through, having spent so many, so many years and so much time unpacking that. And I find myself very frequently going up to students who I can see being crushed. I'm so cognizant of it now. That's fantastic. So, cause you might help somebody. This show, I, one of my goals for this show is to help somebody who, who hears this and who's like, that's me right? Like what, what else can I do? How can I make it different? How, what message can I pass along? I am that you see this. One of my friends who I went to to Harvard with, he teaches at Ryerson university in Toronto, Canada. Um, and they have, um, an action lab there whereby they, they teach people essentially organizing, um, not just how to write political policy. That's all part of it, but then how you sort of take policy to the ground and make things happen. And he invited me to do leadership with some of his students. And he has this really wonderful, diverse group of students. But I found myself in a very interesting position because a lot of the um, Muslim young women that were there were really sort of being dismissed hmm. in terms of their own personal struggles. And I'm not, you know, not going to go into them, but like, I was watching them be crushed. And so I became like very good friends with a lot of these students. Um, and found that this is, this is a very universal experience for a lot of people. Mm, right. And right. then we get into adulthood. We don't, you know, cause you know, mental health and things like that are not things that we talk about, right? Yep. We're exactly. supposed to be whole packages. We're not supposed to be work in progress. We're supposed to be perfect and failure is the worst thing that you can do. Yep. And so We're you really carry these narratives. Yep. You got to be strong. You got to be strong. Like, no, you have to be strong, but you're supposed to be the strong. You're the backbone of the community and all of these things, yeah. I mean, honestly, I would, I would, I would challenge the, the, the teachers who are, are listening to this or will listen to this to just go and ask their students the first time something really crushing was said to them and what it was and how that made them feel. Mm. I because think they should, they should even say, if it was me, say it. Like, yeah. allow them that space. Allow them that space and take away that lesson. Mm. And I know that teachers are, are struggling in this country. Right. That's um, and they're that's struggling that. under that narrative too. I would ask them to also ask, their, ask themselves that question. Right. Yeah. A, a step further is ask a colleague, have mm-hmm. I, has something happened here mm-hmm. that was crushing for you? 
are we transferring our trauma to our students? Yeah. I'm going to push you and drive you and beat on you because I know that you need this education and I know what it is without it. Right. And like, I know what it is not to academically succeed. Like I know that crushing feeling. So my response is I'm going to shove you because I want to protect you from this thing when actually that's really not a collaboration. That's not a dialogue. That's not a conversation. That's not vulnerability and vulnerability is so incredibly difficult but it's where everything that's beautiful lives. Yeah. Wow. That was good. (laughs) It is not, it's not something that, um, black, white, whomever, just like American culture, you don't want to show. You don't show vulnerability. And if you're an authority figure, right, we have a very specific thought about what authority figures should be in a predominantly white patriarchal culture. I personally (laughs) do not think they're very healthy. And I think they need to be examined and I think they need to be um, dismantled Mm. and something better has to be put in its place. But unless you're willing to confront what's wrong, you really can't get to anything new. That's fantastic. That made me think about your other, um, what you were saying that teachers need to really ask themselves, like, what are my biases? Like what, um, and unless you're willing to confront it. And I have been in situations where um, I would try to, show you know call in and and bring up and the defense is just you know the you know there's a lot of i have to defend myself that's not true i don't do that i I should it's like you have to be willing to be open and consider maybe i did make someone feel this way maybe i did behave that way and and i think there's this idea that if you admit that you're like admitting that you're a bad person you can be a good person and be racist (laughs) there's that piece i Um, consider myself a good person and i get it wrong on a daily basis Yes. I get it wrong on a daily basis. But I wonder what it probably all do. Yeah. And you had defenses up or, you know, your guard up for a while. And I think. Oh, in terms of defensiveness. Yes. I could have been your reigning queen. So what do you think it was that made you get to a place where you could. I could have been the reigning queen of defensiveness. What made you start looking at you then? What was it? Like, I wonder what somebody can hear from you now that can make them decide, okay, I'll stop dismissing what's being told to me and and maybe listen and and look at myself in terms of friendships in terms of romance in terms of what i could contribute to my field um and and working in the the realm of um homelessness um where people are so vulnerable and i really saw people being so decent despite the harm done to them i mean really unspeakable harms Mm. And I think it just, it just made me, it just like, it just, I don't know, like it was just one of those paradigm shifts where you just see somebody being brave enough to be vulnerable Uh. and you see the actual reward of it. And you're just sort of like, what the hell have I been doing? And I still struggle with it. I struggle with it to this day. So for people who like feel defensive, who feel their guards go up and all of those things, I sympathize with you. It's not easy. And it's also not easy to like go back through your childhood and be like, that's what crushed me. Mm. I mean, your te- like fr- friends, uh, Alexandra Bailey, very real. This is ridiculous. Um, you te- I mean, you're tearing up right now and I see <laughs> how hard this is. And it's like, we, these are these things where it's like real and you, you can laugh about it. Cause it's like, it's not happening now. Like, right. But it's like, it still didn't mean it didn't hurt any less. Right. Like it's like, it gets hard to, um, one of the, I, I teach this racism class at night and we talk about 
how it's a gift. We need to treat people's stories as a gift that they're giving us because they had to relive or rethink about the stuff. So I really, I, I appreciate your vulnerability. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. You know, and it, it's still very uncomfortable for me to be vulnerable. Yeah. But when I was studying under Marshall Gans um, at Harvard, who um, is really like an organizer's organizer, right? Like everybody knows who this man is. Um, and he, he teaches this course on organizing. And the first time I wrote my story of self, which is where you begin, the notes that I got back from him were, this is well-written, this is very well uh, curated, mm -hmm. and it's total bullshit. Mm. This, has, this, this has nothing to do with the pain, the crushing force, that thing underneath you that says to you, I'm going to change society. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. And this, this doesn't work for me. And this is, this is not going to exist in my backyard. And maybe my backyard is the only thing that I can handle. But like you, you, me and this subject, like we're going to have a thing. <laughs> he said, and he, he said something in a lecture that has stuck with me. He said, we don't learn anything from perfect people. Right. And I think if teachers are vulnerable yeah. and imperfect, but clearly in love with their students, in love with what they do, um, and modeling that very difficult process of uh -huh. not being perfect, but still striving that maybe students can start to open up about the things that are troubling them. And then they can actually start to seek help as opposed to either burning it down and, and um, acting out yeah. you know, where, where we bottle and bust, right? And we see that in adults too, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know, um, or, you know, they turn self-destructive you know, they turn that hatred in on themselves. And I particularly see that amongst women, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, or they, they check out because they didn't get it right the first time. Yep. What if, so what, what did we ever get right the first time? I mean, I have gotten nothing. <laughs> I have gotten nothing right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, you got it. That's a great question. I mean, nothing, seriously. And, and, but certain groups and certain people, um, there's just a standard that you get held to. That's just unfair. Great questions, right? What have we gotten right the first time? Um, I appreciate that. Um, the tips for teachers or for whomever, whoever is listening and, and for being open about like what struggles you had and then what you found ways to overcome, you know, I mean, or, or to deal. And I, it sounds like you're still finding those ways, but I love that you now can see it in students or people that you can gravitate toward that you can talk to and be like, I've been there. Well, I also love that you, you crossed those borders for so long that now you don't like you go to them, mm -hmm. <laughs> said, right. To permeate them, to tell it like it is, or to like, I mean, I literally take a student to a border with me and just be like, watch this. <laughs> take somebody with you even better. Yeah, let's take them, take them right up to that border and just like jump across that border and be like, look, all, all like the, the big bad wolf, yes. this big thing that they've created, you have power. Hmm. And this is what your power looks like. And all of those, you think you're alone, right? Because that's what our society tries to create for us, right? Yeah. You're the only person experiencing this. Yeah. So solidarity is hard for a lot of people. Yeah. But especially in a space like, you're a student and I don't, and I imagine maybe some college stuff you had, but like when you're in those spaces and you are the only one, like what you just said, you are not alone. There's somebody, there is somebody else. There's some grown up that will hear you. You don't realize that, but there's some grown up. And I think teachers need to be willing to be that grown up. 
I mean, if, if you were in a place, in a true and vulnerable place with a student where a student could come up to you and say, you know, I'm going through this. Yeah. And, and, um, and, and on top of that, I don't get this homework. And I feel like crap. <laughs> right? Could you help me? <laughs> but how do you teach a kid that? That they can do that. Right. That they can feel comfortable doing that. We have to create environments that are safe for vulnerability. Yes. And to create an environment that's safe for vulnerability, like as an adult, you can learn to be vulnerable and realize that not everybody's going to respond to your vulnerability. Yeah. And that some people are going to put you down and things like that. And you're just sort of like, okay, I'm an adult now and I know how to live in my own truth. Right. Right. You know, and I know how to speak truth to power mm-hmm. and I know like who I am and what I'm about and that I have decided through my own struggles that nobody's going to take that from me. Mm-hmm. But it takes a long time to get there. If you ever get there, and if we want children to be there, then it behooves us to really get our own crap together and model that for them. Absolutely. I think that the modeling of it can help kids to not feel like, okay, for these eight hours, I can't even be myself. I, I think, you know, like I, I have to just like be whoever you think I should be until I can leave again. And I think if you realize that students were carrying that, we're holding on to that, we're not, we're dreading coming. So many of the things that you said or implied that you felt like, you know, or eating somewhere else and being by yourself so much, if they, if they were aware that it's happening and that, you know, if I could be more vulnerable, maybe I could prevent this. Maybe, maybe that would be a catalyst for them to I mean, and no human exists as an island, right? This whole concept that you can exist as an island. And even people who manage to tough their way through and achieve. Right. I still have questions about the mental and emotional health. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's you. You know, you had to. And then you ended up, I don't think I knew before this that you did, that you went to Harvard. Uh, was that grad, undergrad? <laughs> um, undergrad. Undergrad. Um, so my, I first started studying at the University of London and I was, I was in theater. And that was my, that was my first love in my first career. And then 2008 happened and my family really lost everything. Mm. See, I um, think that can be a trick too. They see yeah. that your grades are decent. They see that your skin is lighter. They see that you're going to study in London and people look at those things and they think that you're fine. Oh, I can't even tell you how many times I have Trojan horsed people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get myself into these environments just so I can just set off a hand grenade. (laughs) (laughs) They thought they were safe. (laughs) Now I'm going to start asking questions. Pushing back. Yes, I love that. Yeah. Happy side. You had to go through hell, right? But then there's a happy side, but not not always, but there was something in there that could I mean, and my hell, like, it was, was a cakewalk compared to what some people go through because at the end of the day, I am a, you know, a cisgendered, heterosexual, light-skinned, able-bodied person. Right. Who you went know, I just, to I listed, Who went to private school. I just listed off five, like six privileges right there. I mean, real privileges. And for all the struggles, I still have um, social capital that comes to me from that. Yes. That I'm able to exercise. Um, and it has really allowed me to go into places of privilege and like talk to them about reappropriating their resources um, and, and actually thinking about these things and partnering with people like Jean. Um, But there are some days where I really run out of patience and I struggle with it 
but that change needs to happen, you know, and it's, it's become, yeah. it's become my life's, my life's mission. And um, I do it really imperfectly, but it feels like a worthy thing to do every day. So, you know, it's a tradition of organizing that I'm happy to, to pass on. Um, but that's right, to educate people more, to be more aware of this, like what it does, what it does to people. Um, thank you for sharing the story that you said, you shared. Everybody doesn't always come out with, you know, come out swinging. And like, you know, fortunately for you, you were able to keep moving forward. Um, and I'm glad that you became the kind of Trojan horse person that like, you know, when you do move forward, you do push back and you do challenge <laughs> and things like that. Um, but you know, it's not everybody's story and, and the hard times could have been better. You know what I mean? Like if you didn't have to go through it, that could have been just like made your life that much easier. And it's like, people have the power to help make students' lives a little bit better. And it's like, even though everything else, you know, so many other things about academia are, are hard and the planning and the emotional pieces and all that, those little tweaks, mm -hmm. I think, well, I, I always say, like, you are not going to be able to protect your students or anyone you care about from all the trauma that the world's going to provide, but you don't have to add to it. Okay. And you definitely can be a safe haven. I mean, can you imagine what the world looks like if kids are like, oh, I can't wait to go to school. That's my safe space. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how does, I mean, what does America look like when that's the case? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Whatever race, background, or level of ability you're, you're coming at it with, you're just like, man, I can't wait to go to school. That's my safe space. I'm seen. I'm heard. Like, I'm achieving. This feels good. Like, you know, I want to be there. No, mom, I got to stay an hour afterwards. I got to work on my project. Um, you know, and, and my project is something that's meaningful to me. You I know, mean, and my skills good. are being cultivated. I'm hearing the, ah. I know, right? I mean, like every, I mean, the problems of society get solved, you know what? And, um, yeah. and I always say, I always think to myself, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm not the person that solves this, but maybe like, you know, that girl that I went to go comfort during an organizing event, maybe she's the one who solves this. Mm. And if she gets crushed right now, that's going to get taken from her. Maybe she recovers. Maybe she doesn't. Right. I'm not willing to take that risk. Mm. I mean, at least not on my own watch, you know, I can't be everywhere at all times, but at least not on my watch. Yeah. I think, again, the more that people hear this, guys, I think any space that you're in where there's a dominant culture, if I went into a football locker room mm -hmm. <laughs> as, a, as a female reporter or as a, you know, I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel the culture that's there and it might make me uncomfortable. And maybe there's one or two football players that'll be like, oh, let's kind of table some of that talk just for a little bit for this person. You know, it's like, they're not doing anything wrong. That's just what they talk about. Right. But it's okay. It's, they could kind of hear the other person that comes in there. And I want to think like when I say, in these white spaces, this is not bashing white people. This is saying just recognize it and, and realize that even if you're being good and nice and kind, there's some things that you're missing about a person of color's culture that's not getting included here. I mean, race we is a construct and it has serviceability. Say that again? It race is a construct and, yeah. it, and, it, and it has a serviceability. Right. And you have to examine that. Yeah. I mean, because I think... And I think a lot of people are afraid of examining that because of what we want to believe about our own achievement, mm. you know, and what we want to take credit for. And because we're in a... That I wasn't handed this because of... Exactly. And yeah. we're in a one-up society. Yeah. 
There's no such thing as too much. There is no such thing as satisfaction and there is no such thing as, 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 uh, as perfect achievement. It doesn't exist. So you're literally set up um, in, a, in a privileged construct yeah. that is designed to make a certain sect of people worthy and another sect of people unworthy. Exactly. That's and I think be it's BS. <laughs> you think For the record. You think it's BS? I think it's BS. <laughs> We're going to leave off on that BS Okay. <laughs> next time we pick up, because again, here, that's a whole nother topic that I won't start right now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Alexandra. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm telling you, there's so much more that we could talk about. <laughs> And so much that we've covered. There's so much. I've had a blast. Thank you so much for 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 having me. I um I didn't plan on getting this vulnerable. I guess you're just good, huh? You're just ah. <laughs> you know what? I was a journalist for years, and it's so funny. Once I moved over to education, every so often I have somebody that'll be like, "Did you like? How did you get that information out of that person? Or how did you?" Or they'll be like, "Let's ask journalist Samantha." And it's like one of these things. Another journalist friend who who went on to do something else we talked about how like once you were it can't leave like i was like well i was a journalist. no like i think that journalist in there it never <laughs> left and it can't i have so many stories to for people to tell and i can't um not tell them so i think thank you for giving me that credit i think part of it is you though for also your willingness from whatever you've learned through life to like i want i want to share this i want to like your interest in helping people so i'm going to give you some giving you some of that credit right back so glad that we had this time to talk um Thank you so much for having me. Alrighty. Thank you so much, friends, for listening to the show today. Wow. Compelling good stuff from Alexandra Bailey. Again, just so you know, if you happen to live in Ward 2 in D.C., Alexandra Bailey will be on the ballot on November 3rd to be the Advisory Neighborhood Commissioner for 2F08 in Ward 2. That's going to do it for us. Um, Thanks again for tuning in to another episode. Please, I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. Perhaps you've had some daily border crossing incident or you know someone who has. Scroll down so you can leave a message. You can also reach me on Facebook, facebook.com slash daily border crossings, daily border crossings at gmail.com. So reach out. I'd love to hear from you. And thanks again for tuning in. Today's show produced by myself with music by Miles J Beats as always. All right, we'll see you next time.